I'm very happy that uh, we have such great attendance uh, once again. Uh, I am the uh, chairman for the Clinical Research, Scientific, Poster, and Abstract Committee uh, here at Pain Week. I've been that for the last 11 of the 12 years. And uh, once again, I think we've broken uh, uh, participation enrollment records. So I thank all of you. And this year we introduced a new track, the Acute Pain Track, which uh, the uh, inaugural lecture was yesterday, and it was a packed house, 250 about. So we continue, hopefully, to uh, meet and exceed the expectations of all the participants in the room. Today, I'm very honored to um, have a distinguished faculty. They're all senior faculty here at Pain Week, and uh, we're going to talk about clinical trials. I'm just basically going to give a, a start off, um, an overview. These are my disclosures, and... Uh, these are the topics that each individual is going to address in the lectures. Dr. Nalamachu is not here today, unfortunately, but he sends his best uh, regards to all. So I think we know that uh, drug development, um, particularly uh, from the uh, commercial enterprise standpoint, uh, continues to expand globally. And when we look at uh, CNS, which pain is included in, uh, we find that CNS in particular is expanding. And the role of the investigator is very prominent, so we're going to look at that today. It's also very important for drug discoverers to understand uh, how we can improve our assay sensitivity. We have uh, Ernest who's going to talk to us about that, and it's very interesting times because you may have seen that Dr. Gottlieb made a statement about changing the guidance documents for the development of non-opioid analgesics just yesterday. We also recently, as of last week, had notification that there were changes uh, from the 2016 guidance documents on PKPD uh, parameters and the use of PK modeling. So there's a lot of things that are going on in drug development right now that are of great interest and that um, will uh, definitely shape particularly the uh, analgesic realm uh, going forward. So the number of trials continue to expand, and if we see here, uh, quite a bit of those are uh, done um, outside the U.S., uh, but still a good amount are here in the United States. And the types of registered studies may differ um, if we look at interventional versus uh, observational trials, uh, et cetera. We're also starting to see the um, utilization of real-world data and incorporation of health economics and outcomes research studies. A lot of times these are... Um, done at the end of uh, a, a registry period. Um, sometimes they'll be done as a phase 3B type trials. Um, and a lot of this has to do with the potential risk that may be incorporated with approval of a drug um, and adding additional data and studying the drug during that review period. So health economics and outcomes research data um, continues to grow and continues to have an important role. And Dr. Ben-Joseph will go through that with us. So um, to get right into the program, I'm going to start off with Dr. Robert Raffa. And Dr. Bob Raffa is senior faculty here at Pain Week. And Bob is um, a pharmacologist with an engineering background, uh, one of the uh, uh, world-renowned opioidologists and uh, CNS uh, drug development. He used to head that for uh, Johnson & Johnson um, in the Janssen Drug Discovery Group. And so he's going to uh, start us off with a little primer. 
right? We look at drugs either as new chemical entities or 505B2s or uh, we look at medical devices as, all, as well in the development uh, process. And Bob's going to introduce us to um, some uh, molecules that might go into drug development and then we'll talk about uh, the process thereafter. So Bob, uh, welcome and thank you very much. Thank you very much, Dr. Pergolesi, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. My pleasure to be here again this week and uh, to lead off the session on uh, clinical trials. And just as a way of disclosure and also to give you an indication of my background and where, uh, how I approach uh, today's talk, I am sort of at the early end of the clinical trials. I'm in drug discovery, or I was. And I worked for Johnson & Johnson during the days of Tremadol, and then I taught at uh, School of Pharmacy, and I continue to be involved in uh, analgesic uh, research and discovery and development, uh, et cetera. So I'm very proud of those past experiences. In terms of learning objectives, um, what I would like to do is talk about the early part of clinical trials, you know, what compounds go into clinical trials, uh, what new is coming along, and what uh, each might represent in terms of special challenges for what you'll hear later, the, uh, the actual running and evaluation of uh, clinical trials. Now, these are, uh, I, I am lucky. I get to pick those things which interest me and I hope interest you and I hope give you a flavor for what's coming along and what you might expect in terms of uh, developing drugs. And I have selected four uh, this year, and they all have different um, uh, aspects to them and represent different challenges and are different in how far along they are in the process. So the first one I chose was Kratom analogs. And notice it's not Kratom, but Kratom is in the news, of course, a lot lately, and depending on who you listen to, it's either totally harmless or it's the worst thing ever. And as usual, the basic science seems to have been lost in these discussions. But already people are developing analogs for Kratom, and it's going to represent uh, certain challenges to those people who have to develop uh, these drugs. So... Just as a way of summary, kratom is derived from a plant source in Southeast uh, Asian countries, a rather localized uh, origin. It's from uh, a plant that's related to the coffee plant. And it's sort of interesting. Uh, it's a dual-acting agent. Uh, at low doses, it's used historically uh, over a long period of time by laborers as a stimulant, so to allow them to work longer without getting tired and sleepy, etc. cetera. Uh, the exact mechanism of that is not known, but it's thought to possibly involve the inhibition of the neuronal reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin. At higher doses, uh, it becomes opioid-like, and traditionally, it's used to sort of treat opioid abuse problems 
but it could certainly be used as an opioid-like substance to give opioid-like effects. So it's a dual-acting substance from nature, and we wrote a little article suggesting that really it's nature's tramadol or nature's tepentadol. So just as nature evolved morphine, it also evolved, to our surprise, compounds that are uh, dual-acting. So a little bit more about this drug. It is, uh, the structure is shown here, and right away it's interesting because this does not look like, to any person I know, like an opioid structure. And there have been efforts to fit this to opioid receptors, computer modeling. They haven't really been done definitively, and there's still a lot of ambiguity about whether they're opioid or not. And uh, clearly, it has other mechanisms of action. So we're in the usual problem of nomenclature. Is it an opioid or is it not an opioid? Uh, we need a word to say that it's both simultaneously. But that's the fundamentally what's behind the confusion. So already in 2016, people have been looking for analogs in terms of drug development. So this is going to soon be in clinical trials of one sort or another. And uh, the thought is that perhaps part of the explanation of how it works relates to other drugs that are in development and may impact how one develops this drug. So there's some evidence that it might be, you know, by now the familiar term, a biased ligand in that it interacts with the opioid receptors, but it's, you know, that's only step one of the overall process that as part of the transduction, you have the G protein system, which transduces the signal from the receptor binding to the second messenger biochemical processes and that at least these analogs show some bias for the uh, activity that would be related to pain relief in preference over uh, the uh, adverse effects of the opioids. So here are the data for uh, some of the comp two of the compounds that are in Kratom, the plant, which contains, I don't know, 50 or more individual substances, and the active ingredients primarily are mitragynin and 7-hydroxymitragynin. So depending on the plant, depending on where it's grown, the temperature and all that, you get different percentages of these. But as you see represented in the table in the upper left, here's the binding affinity to the opioid receptors. And remember that the way these are done, the smaller the number, the greater the binding affinity. So morphine is on the right there, 3.5 nanomolar binding affinity, and the mitragynin and 7-OH mitragynin uh, is pretty close, actually, so within the same area. There's some differentiation at the uh, delta and kappa subtypes of opioid receptors. No one's quite sure whether that makes a difference or not. But the real important thing is... If you look at the table on the right and the figures below that, what that shows is that these compounds are about equipotent to morphine in vivo in terms of pain relief, but cause far less constipation. So that would be consistent with this biased ligand approach. 
And again, it's consistent with dual mechanisms. And again, it kind of seems like nature's uh, tremadol and tapentadol. So that's the excitement. If one could capitalize on those differences and uh, have a good clinical candidate. So from a development point of view, the challenges are going to be uh, multi-mechanistic sort of compound, the questions, is, the questions that uh, such compounds raise. Also questions about the adverse effect profile. You know, is there an interaction with the uh, different mechanisms of action? And also, if you want to pursue the bias ligand approach, then, well, exactly how is that going about and, and how do you explain that? So uh, for those who are not familiar with that, the idea is that it's the same receptor, but the signal is transduced by two separate pathways, one involving beta arrestin and the other involving sort of the traditional G-protein signaling, and that depending on which one you selectively activate, you will get either the desired therapeutic effect or you're going to get the adverse effect. So the challenge is to design your ligand or your drug that would activate one uh, without the other. So uh, that's going to be part of, the, of the, any development uh, process, and also it's a challenge to convert this uh, in clinical trials in humans to demonstrate that this test tube data really uh, translates to uh, something meaningful. So the analogs are already here. And the leftmost curve shows that it is this particular one, and again, they can customize this any way they want, this one primarily attaches to the mu opioid receptor. So that's what that lower red bar is showing. You can block it with a mu opioid receptor antagonist. You don't with a delta, the blue. So the red's beta FNA, and the blue is now trindol, and the green is norbni. So that's the kappa one. So this is a selective mu agonist. The middle curve uh, shows this again by using uh, antisense uh, knockdown in animals. The results are exactly the same. And then piling on, they show it a third way by using uh, knockout mice. So mice that are devoid of the mu opioid receptor do not respond to this compound. So it's pretty clear that there's a mu opioid component. Uh, the next slide, I won't go into detail, but it simply shows that there is a non-opioid component, and that withdrawal is less with this compound than morphine. Tolerance develops much slower than with morphine. And the gastrointestinal uh, or constipation is much less with this compound compared to morphine. And even the reward uh, sensed by animals is less than equally analgesic doses of morphine. So it's a pretty exciting idea. Uh, it's all new um, chemistry in a sense. Uh, it's sort of new pharmacology and uh, it's going to be uh, a bit of a challenge but exciting for the clinical development because it's going to be new. It's going to be the first uh, substance quite like this. Uh, the next topic out of the four is, you know, the laboratories uh, nowadays are getting away from whole animal uh, discovery of compounds and they're going directly to the test tube. And they're trying to do that even faster and more efficiently. So, uh, I mean, the ultimate, of course, is to do drug discovery by computer. And that's certainly going on. But at some point, you're going to want to test these compounds in some assay. 
And so the limiting factor, believe it or not, now is often how long it takes for the medicinal chemist to make a milligram or whatever to put in a test tube in any sort of meaningful assay. And so now they've uh, figured out a way to do this on the nanoscale level, and everything's going to be done by computers, sort of from beginning to end. And all you're going to need is a nanogram quantity of the compounds. And in fact, you don't even need to test them individually. You can put them sort of in one big test tube. And in the lower right there, you could see the readout you get. Those are all individual compounds, all tested simultaneously. And again, we're not going to go into the details, but depending on the coloration, they're able to tell whether that's a potentially active compound or not active compound. And then based on that, you could go to the next level. You could actually use the enzyme or uh, the receptor or whatever it is you're going to do. And then you can build up, you can scale up. And so the medicinal chemists are only spending their time making milligram quantities of those substances which have already demonstrated uh, the activity. So this would greatly accelerate uh, the entire uh, process. And then this is something I, I think is very exciting. I mean, uh, I've given you an example of a natural compound that has a certain development process. Uh, but, you know, the pharmacology is fairly well known. The second is an example of an accelerated pace. So the question is, at what point do you put one or more of these compounds into development? Because you're going to be identified uh, exciting compounds at an increasingly rapid rate and more of them. So how do you distinguish which ones you want to put into the clinic and at what time? And what time do you want to put them into animals, et cetera? This represents a brand new target. So I call it folded DNA. There's really no widely accepted term yet. But this is recent information that shows in humans something that they've suspected for a couple of years but haven't really shown before. And that is we're all used to seeing the cognate structure of DNA, right? I mean, the double helical structure. Well, it turns out that in human cells, you can get these different motifs. And, you know, they got nice names. Uh, G uh, quadruplex and I motif, and there's a couple more now. So basically, these are folds inherent to DNA or induced in DNA. And it's not fully been described what their normal physiological function might be, but it's absolutely clear that if these things sort of bubble up in the strands of DNA, they could cause problems. And the immediate suggestion is that this might lead to cancer or things like that. So without waiting to really fully define what's going on, people are already screening compounds, and they've already identified compounds shown at the top and bottom that will either inhibit or stimulate uh, these sections of the DNA. And, of course, the obvious potential application would be as chemotherapeutic agents but it strikes me that we're not too far away from suggesting that it might be good for neuropathic pain conditions, maybe chemotherapy, 
therapeutic-induced neuropathies and things like that. So here's a case where you have an absolutely brand-new target, and the challenge to the developers is going to be, well, what assays to use? You know, what are your predicted side effects? How are your clinical trials uh, going to look, et cetera? And then finally, this one is just sort of pie in the sky. There are molecules that uh, these authors call membrane-spanning enzymes, and that's the way they talk about it in their publication. But when I look at this, I say, boy, you're just one step away from a receptor, and if this were totally to span that membrane, you would have a receptor, and I'm just wondering if this could somehow be used as receptor insertion. Uh, You know, is there a disease in which the major problem is something to do with too low receptor count? And sort of the answer is obvious. I mean, myasthenia gravis is certainly that. But I wonder if there are others in the pain world that maybe someday in the future we're not just activating or inhibiting receptors, but we're actually inserting them Uh, in there, either initially or as uh, a repair mechanism. So again, this would represent a whole new challenge. You're inserting a receptor now instead of just a drug. You know, what are going to be the regulatory requirements and how do you run those clinical trials? What are the theoretical and real side effects, et cetera? So hopefully I whetted your your appetite, and now you're going to hear about how people actually take these ideas and others uh, through the clinic. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. We will have questions at the end, so we're going to try to make uh, sure that we have time to address those questions. Now I'd like the opportunity to introduce Dr. Errol Gould, who's another senior faculty member um, here at Payne Week. And he's going to tell us uh, about the very important role of a principal investigator. So you just heard from Bob about developing compounds. Well, compounds don't automatically just materialize and then go to the clinic. It takes a lot of work in order to to get them to that point. I'm going to talk about and this story progression of finding a compound, becoming an investigator. Ernest will talk about clinical trials. Rami will talk more about the aftermath of that and the health outcomes related to, to developing products. So this is an entire story that we're, we're trying to tell. So if you want to be an investigator, lots of people contact our MSLs or they contact me directly. What do I have to do to become an investigator without having any knowledge of what that entails. So I'm going to give you a brief overview of what that entails so you have some idea when you actually are asked to be an investigator or come to a pharma company or a device company to be an investigator. So I am an employee of Pernix Therapeutics, although all of the opinions I express today are my own. So we're going to talk about what are the regulations to being and rules of being a principal investigator, talk about the federal regulations that cover those, as well as, I always think it's important not only to tell you what to do to do something, but you also should know what not to do to keep yourself out of trouble. You don't have to second guess, say, well, should I do this? Shouldn't I do that? And not all research is the same. As you just heard from Bob, it's all 
in the beginning, it's basic laptop, laboratory benchtop science. Then we go into the clinic. And when it comes to industry and pharma and devices, it's about going to get a marketing approval from the FDA to go out and sell the product. So that's the majority of what we're going to talk about today, getting that new drug application completed, how you participate in that. And then once the drug is out there, some of you may have your own ideas on what to do with it, and you'll go back to the pharma company or the device company and ask, could you do this research? Can they support your own individual research? But there's two parts of that. There's the sponsor, which I'm going to talk briefly about, and then there's the investigator. The sponsor is the company, in this case, that I'll be using as my example, who is responsible for the protocol. They're responsible for the clinical trial as a whole, but they don't actually conduct the research. They don't have the subjects coming into the office, in our case in Morristown, New Jersey, and coming to have an exam in our lobby. That just doesn't really happen. It goes to a doctor's office or a, a clinical research organization where they actually have healthcare professionals who run the clinical trial, collect the data. But what is the investigator's responsibilities? What is the investigator? You hear about it, but what are they? They're the person actually hands-on. They're actually conducting the research in their clinic, or they're overseeing people who can do the research. So there's a principal investigator, it's the person who oversees a team, or it should just be you. And being an investigator or a principal investigator, you do not have to be a physician. That was something that, you know, when I started, everybody was a physician who was a principal investigator. But that is not actually the case. As long as there is a sub-investigator who is a physician who can do the requirements for the medical assessment, you can be your own principal investigator without actually going to medical school. So I could do it with my PhD, and I could boss around some other people. So that would be great. But I would wind up being mini-me in this instance, and that's not really my gig. But what are the regulations? What, what are the expectations? Expectation is that you're going to follow the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act because the FDA has oversight responsibilities for clinical trials. There's the Code of Federal Regulations, and those define what the sponsor's responsibilities are and what you as the investigator's responsibilities are. There's a lot of guidances out there on how to conduct clinical research. and You need, should follow those because those will help you with the regulations. And then there's the Form 1572, which has a lot of weight to it, even though it's a simple form that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But the question of, why do we have all these regulations? Well, past research has not always been the proper research that we have today. There have been multiple times where transgressions have occurred, and now either the government has stepped in, or the FDA has stepped in, and now set up these rules. I'm sure you're all familiar with thalidomide, a non-barbiturate sedative that an obstetrician in Australia, in his observation, that when given to a pregnant woman, it reduced morning sickness. Then it became ubiquitous that if you had morning sickness, you would get thalidomide to help you with your morning sickness. So now it's an unapproved use of a drug. So now you're conducting experiments on people who don't know they're being experimented on because it's an unapproved use. The company itself isn't tracking who they're giving the medication to. The healthcare professional isn't really tracking that. 
and there's no FDA to step in and say, no, you can't do that. Well, the Kefauver-Harris Amendment came out right after all of the problems that when these babies were born to give FDA broad responsibilities for clinical trials. They can inspect and audit the pharma company, the investigators. If you're going to conduct a clinical trial, you now have to notify the FDA. And the FDA has the right, if they see a problem, to stop or put on hold a clinical trial until they are satisfied that there isn't a safety concern. And drugs have to be approved for safety and effectiveness. You just can't be going out now and giving medications willy-nilly to people without having an approval according to the FDA. The other big thing that you all have, I'm sure have heard of is the Tuskegee experiment. 1932-ish, 600 men with and without syphilis were studied in a, in a trial without telling them that they were in a trial. Does anybody know the real reason for the experiment? These people, the real reason for, for this experiment was so that they could discover the natural history of syphilis, what it does to the, to the human body without being treated in these African-American males, just so that they could decide later if those, men, those folks should actually receive treatment for their syphilis. So these men were enrolled in a study, not knowing that they were in a study, not knowing the purpose, no informed consent. They didn't know that they could drop out at any time because they weren't allowed. They all would, and they didn't know that there was actually a treatment available for the disease that they were being studied for, penicillin. So there was no informed consent. This has created a series of regulations to make sure that we keep the public interest front and center. The patient is the most important, and being honest with the public is paramount. There's also a guidance to good clinical practice. And this isn't clinical practice as you do every day in your clinics. This is good clinical practice when you're conducting a clinical trial. And it's harmonized between the US, the European Union, and Japan. So if you conduct a clinical trial in one of these places and do it according to your, your health organization, like in our case, the US, the FDA, that you can submit that information to that health agency to get approval of the drug in that country, or in the case of the EU, countries. But it's about clinical practice and a clinical trial and not about how you treat your patients. And that will become apparent when we talk about what's in the 1572. Treating patients is not the same as treating subjects in a clinical trial. Academic research is, isn't the same either. Clinical trials are very structured. And as a principal investigator, you've agreed to follow the protocol that the sponsor has provided. It's the roadmap of what they want to accomplish, the timing that they want to accomplish, whatever observations or data they want to collect. And your job is to, you've agreed to collect that information and enroll these subjects. But always, paramount, always pay attention to the welfare of the subjects. And if you've noticed, I keep referring to people in clinical trial as subjects, not patients, because they're not patients. They're subjects in a research endeavor. They're not patients being treated for a medical condition in your clinic. They may be one and the same. Those patients 
that you've enrolled could be those subjects. I'm sorry, see? I've done it. Those subjects you've enrolled could be your, your patients that you have, that you see monthly or however often for whatever disease condition that's being studied. But once they become, in, enter that clinical trial, they're subjects. And there's a lot of pulls and pushes when it comes to being an investigator. The sponsor, they're going to want you to enroll subjects, as many as you can, as quickly as you can, but they have to be the appropriate subjects. And there's the inclusion-exclusion, and that's part of the protocol. The study subjects, they're willing to be in the study, but you have to watch out for their welfare. <laughs> there have been a number of clinical trials that have been stopped because of adverse events, that unexpected adverse events that have occurred in these subjects. So you have to look out for their welfare. The FDA, obviously we've just mentioned, their oversight of all clinical trials, and that includes you as the investigator. Office of Human Protection, the, the Institutional Review Board, or the Individual Ethics Committee. They're there to look out for the welfare of the subjects. And we'll talk more about the ethics the IRB committee in a few minutes. And the institution. You don't want to disparage your institution by doing something wrong in a clinical trial and then you wind up in the headlines connected to a prominent university because that's not a good thing. Not good for you, not good for your patient or your subjects, and it's not good for the institution that you're being employed by. Some general responsibilities. A lot it goes into this, the Form 1572, and I'll show you in the next slide. It's literally a simple two-page form. However, that form states by signing it, and it is a criminal offense to sign a 1572 and lie. So you can, even though this form does not go to the FDA and, until the NDA is submitted, so it's not like it's a requirement up front that you sign this form, in order to be an investigator, you have to sign the form. Form states that you will look out for the welfare of the, of the subjects. If you're going to have any, any sub-investigators, that you've trained them properly, you're going to follow the protocol. You're going to report to the IRB any issues. You're going to report to the sponsor any unexpected, serious, adverse events when they occur. But a big part is that you're going to do what you've agreed to do as part of being an investigator and following that protocol. And you're going to follow all the rules and regulations. Protecting the safety and the rights of those subjects that you enroll. You're not going to coerce them to enter the study. You're not going to say, hey, I'm just going to take your blood pressure and I'm going to give you $1,000. That is not allowed. And the IRB will nix that before you ever get to conduct the that in a clinical trial. You're going to control the investigational drug product. By control, that means you're going to lock it away. You're not going to give it to someone who's not part of the clinical trial. There's other avenues, especially with things like cancer research, where there's also compassionate use. This is not that. This is a clinical trial where the medication is typically blinded, and you keep it locked away. You have a place that is secure. Informed consent. That's a biggie. You need to make sure that the subjects have signed an informed consent and understand it. An informed consent is written at a 6th to 8th grade educational level. 
But you have to make sure that they understand that they're volunteering, that whatever medication they're given is experimental. They may be reimbursed or compensated for their time in the clinical trial, but it's not outrageously high to coerce them to enter into the, into the study. And the IRB will assess whether or not any of these things are, are a problem and that you have all the elements required for the informed consent. And the IRB will review all the information, including advertising as well as the protocol. And there have been IRBs who have said, well, why are you conducting this clinical trial? Because they don't see the risk-benefit to the subjects being erring on the side of benefit. It's more risk. And then they ask the question, is this really necessary? Or you're over, overstating things in your advertising. So here's the Form 1572. As I said, it's a very simple form. However, by signing it, you're committed that your CV that you've also signed and provided is up-to-date and accurate, and that you're going to follow the protocol and look out for the subjects. So that is paramount when you conduct clinical research, looking out for the well-being of those subjects. And the people who work for you are well-trained. So what is an IRB? An Institutional Review Board. It's made up of five people, typically. There has to be mixed gender. can't just be all one gender. That's previously, back in the day, it could be just all female or all male, but not anymore. The rule is there has to be at least one person on that committee who's of a different gender than the, than the rest. If you were going to conduct this study in prison, in prisoners, I should say, a prisoner representative would have to sit on the IRB and they review everything, the protocol, advertising, the investigator brochure, which is a summary of all the information about that drug up to that date, or reasonably close, including all the information that Bob went through about how the product was developed as a molecule up and through any clinical trials that have been conducted, and gives all the adverse events that are known. They're going to look at that. They're going to want to know what adverse events may occur advertising, all looking out for the welfare of the subjects who enroll. And the international harmonization has that same requirement. The IRB will also look to make sure that you're the right, if with your CV, are you, you know, qualified to conduct a clinical trial or an appropriate person to conduct the clinical trial? And again, it's a, a lot of IRBs are very sensitive to payment as they should be. You don't want to coerce anyone to enter into a clinical trial. You have to also make sure they inform consent that there's, if there is an alternate therapy available to the subject, that they have that right to not be in a clinical trial and still be treated for that disease condition. IRB is overseeing all of that. And every time the protocol is amended, you have to get IRB approval before you start enrolling subjects based on that amendment. So without an IRB approval, you should not be rolling any subjects into a study. Record retention, which is a, was a bigger issue 10 years ago than it is today. The majority of data today is collected electronically. You have your own source documents that may be handwritten on paper, and those have to be retained. But most of the data as we collect it these days, it's electronic. But imagine... Ten-ish years ago, a, a boxcar, a, 
a train boxcar full of paper. That's what an NDA consisted of. And the FDA had to review all that paper. And people who conducted the study, the, the, yeah, the individual investigators, had to maintain copies of their patient's data, their subject's data, at their site in boxes. So obviously consumed a lot of room, became an issue. Now it's more source documents have to be maintained, and you have to be able to access that information quickly. Because if you're one of the top enrolling sites in a study that is submitted to the NDA and during the review process, the FDA will audit the high enrolling sites. So you have to be able to access where your records are so that they can look at your records versus what has been in the database in the electronic format. But when can you get rid of it? That's my latest uh, endeavor dealing with sites who did studies 10 years ago for Pernix. They all of a sudden say, we're moving, I'm retiring, can I get rid of this paper? These are, some of these things are from studies I've, in products I've never even heard of. But they've been sitting in a closet somewhere or in a warehouse, and they want to know if they can get rid of them. I have to go back and look to see what happened to, the, to that product. Two years post a decision being made on that product. So two years after the product is approved, you can, get, you can destroy the source documents. Or two years after the product has been rejected by the FDA and this, the company has decided not to move forward. And you think, all right, well, maybe I, I have to keep this for four years. It can be a long period of time. You just have to keep that in mind. If you're doing research on an antidepressant, those studies take a long period of time. And if you're in the beginning stages of the development of this product, the clinical development of the product, till the time it gets approved, and then plus two years, you could be holding on to it for 10 years. There was just a pain company who went back to the FDA four times. They finally got their final, what they're now deeming their final rejection two years ago, or two months ago, and now they're going to, to stop development. So you still have to hold on to your records for two more years. And there's a lot of reports that need to go to the, back to the sponsor, mostly about safety. Serious, unexpected adverse events are the big piece. And financial disclosure. If during the time you conduct the trial or a year after you get stock in an, a non-publicly traded company or, or $50,000 of stock in a publicly traded, you have to report that. It's a requirement. And things to avoid. As, I, as my time here wraps up, I just want to make sure you understand. Don't give non, too much delegation of responsibility. You're still responsible as the principal investigator. Obvious things. Don't erase or obliterate information. Don't backdate. Don't try to get consent after the, after the subject has already enrolled. Always have the IRB approval. And don't destroy anything. You're responsible to maintain those records and should not be destroying them. Follow the protocol. Sign that 1572. Always look out for the welfare of the subjects. Make, along with that, the informed consent. Report those adverse events as, as appropriate to the sponsor. And maintain your records and comply with all the, the regulations. And don't forget to report your financial interests. And with that, I say thank you for your time.
Thank you very much, uh, Errol. Now uh, I'd like to uh, move on to the next program where we will hear from Dr. Ernest Kopecki. And uh, we are going to look at um, the analgesic uh, clinical trials improving assay sensitivity. Ernest is a, a senior faculty member here at Pain Week and um, recognizes one of the top experts in this particular area. So Ernest, thank you very much for coming and sharing some insight. Thank you, Dr. Perley-Lisey, for inviting me to, to speak here again. Welcome, everybody. So I'm going to change gears a little bit uh, over the next uh, 15, 20 minutes, and I'm going to start talking about some of the practical aspects of running clinical trials. Uh, one of the conundrums that we face today is that um, trials that, that should be positive in, in the analgesic space are turning out not to be positive. And um, there's an initiative um, called IMPACT under Bob Dwork and Dennis Turk that started about 13 years ago that has taken on each year or one aspect of clinical trials with, with analgesics to determine why this is happening and how do we fix this. So I'm going to speak to you for a little while uh, today on some of those aspects. Um, here are my disclosures. I am a salaried employee at Teva Pharmaceuticals. Those and, you know, what I present to you today is, is, are my thoughts and not that of, uh, of Teva. Um, so I'm going to talk to you in kind of three buckets. The first bucket is I'm going to introduce this concept of assay sensitivity. Uh, the second bucket is really talking about some of the, the key features of what you need to keep in mind when you're thinking about your patients and the study site so that you can improve assay sensitivity or the likelihood of, of having a successful trial. And then we'll talk about a couple of uh, clinical trial designs that have good assay sensitivity in this space. So what is assay sensitivity? Well, this is a concept uh, um, that's defined basically as the ability to distinguish uh, an effective treatment from one that's uh, a less effective or ineffective treatment. And this is applicable across different types of trial designs. But basically, if you have a failed study, that would be an indication of poor assay sensitivity as one option. So you can have two options in a failed study. One, your drug didn't work, which is okay. That's, that's fine. Not all drugs are going to work in clinical trials. Or, or um, the study, as designed or as conducted, uh, wasn't capable of distinguishing an effective treatment from placebo. That's not so good. So basically, if we want to start taking a look at some of the aspects of what we can do to help improve assay sensitivity, there have been a number of studies that have shown that poor baseline pain variability is akin to poor assay sensitivity. So in other words, if you have patients who have variable pain scores during the baseline period, they're more likely to be placebo responders. Other aspects associated around that concept of, of pain scores are too many straight eight and nines. That can be indicative of somebody who doesn't have the cognitive ability, who doesn't understand the scales, who can't translate what they're feeling into a numerical scale. Oh, so they put down on oh, just a straight set of eight and nines. Uh, if somebody's using the, the typical 0 to, to 10 uh, PINRS or pain intensity numerical rating scale or visual analog scale, and they put down predominantly all 10s, straight 10s, well, that again could be indicative that you have a patient that doesn't understand that scale, can't translate what they're feeling into a numerical value, or maybe too sick to participate in a study that's usually unimodal therapy. We've seen in the past that uh, in, in lectures here that, that multimodal therapy is really the course when you have patients who have complex chronic uh, pain conditions. So clinical trial is not the place for, for a patient like that to be enrolled into. 
And then the other part, the other concept here is too short of a baseline period. It used to be that you would study it for four days, is collect your baseline information, and there have been a number of studies that have shown now that with longer baseline periods of a week or two weeks, you end up getting a more sensitive baseline, baseline pain score. And remember, that's the score that you're comparing your final outcome at week 12, 14, 16, or however long your double-blind randomized study happens to be. So if you look at the impact recommendations, they're recommending now that you collect data from seven out of seven days with a minimum of six out of seven days to have a more robust baseline pain score. So another aspect of this pain score that we've been talking about is the actual pain score itself. And you will find that patients, unless you train them, will have very specific uh, strategies that they use to come up with that pain score. There was a study that was done on, uh, by Williams et al., and there were a couple of other studies along the same vein, that basically used either a VAS or NRS scale, and they asked, how bad is your pain? And that's a typical outcome measure, right? That's a lot, for a lot of studies, that's a primary outcome measure. And what they found was that patients had a whole different uh, set of constructs that they put into what that answer meant or how they were going to actually provide that answer. So it could be that it was the uh, impact of their pain activities. It could be distress caused by pain. It could be a, just their usual pain, whatever that means to each individual patient. But also tiredness could come into that, comparison to the last bad pain, comparison to the average pain. So you can see basically that there are a lot of uh, different and, um, uh, constructs that come into somebody's pain score, or, and this is a problem. Uh, this presents an issue of pain reporting consistency, and that increases variability. And that's the last thing that we want in a clinical study. We don't want our study subjects to, to be highly variable. So. Um, the good news about this is that we can actually test for this before you start the study. Now, this can be done both qualitatively and quantitatively. Qualitatively, we basically borrow from, from our pediatric colleagues where or they might often ask the, the kids and give them a scenario. For example, if you got your finger caught uh, or got a, your, finger, your ankle caught in a car door or you scratched open a mosquito bite. The point is not a specific number. The point is that they, can, that they can use these scales after they've been trained, and they can show that one of those is low pain and one of those is, is, uh, is, uh, is more pain or higher pain. Um, and maybe what we should be doing is actually borrowing from our colleagues um, in the abuse liability world where in those clinical studies, in the um, uh, clinical abuse potential studies, there's a discrimination phase where or they actually are given an, the same class of drug versus placebo in a randomized fashion. And then basically, if you can't discriminate, you don't get into the actual trial where or that becomes a very important part of the, of the final outcome measure. And this is an example of one of these bedside, for example, quantitative sensory te testing tools. The second part was quantitatively. And what this is, is it's simply applying, for example, a pain stimulus, a heat stimulus repeatedly. And what you're looking for in that subject is somebody who's a good pain reporter will be one who will have, for the same level of pain, a similar score. So you don't want for the same level of pain, and on the first try, a six, on the second try, a three, on the next try, a nine. That's not a good pain reporter. That, that's high variability and could really hurt you in, in, the, uh, in the study. This is a, a caricature of what I was talking about, about that clinical abuse potential study. You can see here in the third column, um, that's basically your drug discrimination phase. If you can't get past that, then you don't get into what really counts for the answer of the study, and that's where you have your randomized double-blind placebo control part of the study. 
Now, there are other constructs as well that we have to keep in mind when we're talking about you know, what makes a, a good study subjects. They have to have the cognitive ability. Dr. Zakharov brought this concept up in the lecture or, uh, before lunch. Uh, well, it's applicable here in clinical studies. And you know, often I'm asked by investigators, so what scale do I use? Well, there is no scale for cognitive ability. This is where you as, as seasoned in, investigators or as clinicians are, uh, present the study to, to the subjects and you see how a particular subject re reacts to what you're saying. Do they understand the protocol? Do they understand what's going to be happening to them? Do they understand what tools they're going to be using? If you think that they can't do that, then they may not have the cognitive ability to participate in a clinical study. And if they can't, if they can't record their their pain scores or their functional scores, quality life scores accurately, then you pretty much ha have a problem with that study, and that may be one of the factors influencing decreased assay sensitivity. Protocol adherence is very important, as well as study drug adherence. We have to understand that that uh, that we need to get subjects out of the patient mentality. Think about your patients. You give them instructions. You spend time. They repeat that. They go home, they come back for a follow-up visit, and they say, I'm not doing well. And you ask them, well, how are you taking what I prescribed to you? And it's not, not the way you prescribed it, not the way you told them how to take it. Because when they feel better, they stop taking it. If they feel worse, they double up, and they're not supposed to do this. But in a clinical study where you're following them very carefully on a day-to-day -day basis, that can play havoc with the actual scores that you're getting. And remember that clean data does not equal accurate data. You can have remarkably clean data that's completely useless. So oh, it's something that you have to be, be careful of that um, training your, your study subjects is very important. Remember, we all fall naturally. When we become sick, we de facto become patients, naturally. But patients don't naturally become study subjects. It requires some investment in the sponsor's time uh, to, for providing the tools and, and the, the funding so that you folks can have the right people to actually train them to be good study subjects. So to improve assay sen sensitivity, you want a strong baseline pain score. Um, that's another concept where previously many studies let patients into a study if they had less than you know, four on a 0 10 visual analog or, or numerical rating score. And there have been data that's showing that if you have a higher pain score at start, then you actually are more likely to have a positive outcome rather than have a placebo responder. Um, low variability we've ta talked about, and that's really a function of uh, compliant skill reporters. And as I mentioned, training, training, and more training of, of, your, of your subjects. Um, the duration of the pain condition is also very important. We used to say that if you have a chronic pain condition, if you've had it for about three months, yes, that's the ISP definition of chronic pain, but we're now seeing that patients who actually they have been newly diagnosed or just have that, that, uh, that chronic pain condition for those three months may be in a state where they're still unstable. And if you look at you know, enrolling patients who have had the condition for six months, you're more likely to have a more stable pa patient and more stable responses you know, during, your, uh, during your clinical trial. So impact recommendations now recommend that you consider a six-month period with the condition of study rather than three months. To increase uh, reliability, a standardization of procedures are really important. I'm, all, I'm often asked, well, what do you think is the problem? Has anybody ever done this and, and really done it right? Well, if we go back to the days of Al Sunshine uh, and his group, you know, people wonder, why were his studies so successful? Um, why did he have such a large standardized effect size? And in modern day, Neil Singla in the acute pain world, well, he also models his study site after, or after um, the, the, the concepts of, of Dr. Sunshine. 
line. And what they do, do is they standardize just about everything. So basically, same time, same measure, or uh, same person, same place. And they also give very clear instructions. And I'll explain this in a minute. But as far as the clear instructions, remember that I, I presented that study where or you were, the patients were asked, or the subjects were asked, as to, um, how's your pain? And they had all sorts of different, different reasons on, on what went into what that score was. Well, what if we went one step further? What if we said, at, okay, hey, how, is your, uh, how bad is your pain? Taking into account all the times when you were awake, including times when you had no pain or low pain, and times when you had more pain, how would you rate your, your average pain intensity in the last week or 24 hours, whatever the interval is? This is basically a cognitive frame. You're giving them something to think about you know, that will put in context. You know, when they say my pain is a six, it doesn't change. They don't bring into the fact that, you know, that they had a fight with somebody the, the day before, that they, didn't get, they were, had a disgruntled issue with somebody in the family. Those are the kind of things that we don't want. We want to focus on the pain and for that particular condition that we're studying. So, in terms of increasing reliability, I say, why a strong baseline score? Well, what you see here is you have data here from back to 1998, where this was a separation of APAP and, and uh, placebo, or APAP and codeine and, and placebo. And you see that on the left, if you had moderate pain scores coming in at baseline, you couldn't separate. But if you had a stronger baseline pain score, you could, se you could separate a, quite substantially. And in, this, in, this, uh, in these two studies over here, dating back to 1991 and 2006, you can see, see there's a circadian rhythm associated with pain, stiffness, and manual dexterity rheumatoid arthritis. You can see there are temporal characteristics associated with PDN and as well as PHN. So what this tells you is in your design and clinical study, you always want to put in a window when you want to do the assessments. In the morning, in the evening, but not four hours. You want to keep it down to one maximum two hours so that you take advantage of keeping everything as standardized as possible. So missing data. Missing data is another key concept. And one of the ways that we mitigate missing data, I think it's no surprise to everybody that paper diaries were notorious for giving you false results, right? Patients would, or subjects would come in there the day before visit and backfill their, their diaries. And there have been studies that have shown that that, that produces pretty, pretty bad results. E-diaries come into play, and today we're in an age of e-everything. Everybody's got an iPhone, or they've, they've got some form of a, of a smartphone, regardless of, of the age. So oh, this is a great tool to have. And what we see here is that just having an e-diary is, is facilitative, and it helps, but it doesn't get you to 98 or 99% compliance. You need to also have uh, uh, somebody called a, a data review coordinator that's employed specifically to watch blank space. So in the morning, this, he or she comes in, opens up the e-diary uh, database, and if they see for active patients where, the, where there should have been uh, data and there are no data, then they call the site, the site gets in touch with the, with the subject to find out was it a diary failure, did they forget to do it, it uh, did it just not transmit, it, that, kind of, that kind of thing, because we want to minimize that. And that's how you get to have very you know, nice, uh, robust data without having to do extrapolations, get into fancy statistics that have their own issues. So some not-so-trivial points is that you need to have the right device. So it needs to be simple, intuitive, and facilitating. All right? These diaries are supposed to help the patient or the subject get through a clinical study, not hinder them, not make it laborious. You need the right training. 
starting at visit one, then retrain them at visit two because now it's a recall. And if it's a three-month, four-month, five-month or longer study, then somewhere in the middle you should revisit and retrain them on the use of that diary as well. And you need to have the right support level, and that's the DRC. So um, Bob Dwork and, and, and Nat Katz conducted a, a study, or actually it was, a, it was really kind of a, a data review, to look at what constructs of study design and actually facilitate a higher standardized effect size, which is basically a measure of, of the effect of your study. And what they found is that longer duration of the condition, which I've, which I've talked about, is good. Uh, using fewer sites is good, and there'll be a paper that'll be coming out, you know, in the next couple of months that, that did a further analysis on, on this as well, supporting this 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 uh, this note. Uh, a smaller sample size is better. Limiting the use of con meds and limiting the use of rescue meds. You don't want to be running a study where the study becomes placebo versus your rescue medication. You want placebo versus your study, study drug. So it's important that you're cognizant uh, of, of what study uh, um, rescue medications you use. And many studies are now using something like APAP, which we know is akin to a couple of Tic Tacs. But the idea there is that it's a cognitive crutch but you really want to test whether your study drug works in that patient population. Two arms is better than more than two arms. Um, I'll talk about the EERW or, in, uh, enhanced, enrich or uh, enhanced Enrollment Randomized Withdrawal a Clinical Study, uh, more over, better than crossover, better than parallel, and appropriate dosing. So uh, flexible uh, dose titration rather than forced titration is something that, that yields better results in the patients because you don't change the patient's phenotype, pain phenotype, right before you start enrolling them in the double-blind portion. So the last part of, of, this, of this piece that I want to talk about is what makes a good site? Well, these good sites differentiate themselves largely because they know how to com complete and they know how to teach each, uh, subjects to complete their outcomes. Uh, good sites train subjects and train their st study staff uh, to assess things like uh, cognitive ability of, of, of the subjects. Uh, they have sufficient resources and, the, and they've scheduled time to train patients and make sure that they understand what they're asked to do during the study. Okay. And they also review subjects in real time. Um, we don't, for, for things like, like uh, contra, contradictions in, in the data that they're reporting, incongruencies, errors, because remember, clean data, you can have remarkably clean data that's all wrong. Um, and that doesn't equal accurate data. But what's very important amongst all of this is that the good sites also set a relationship expectation. So you heard um, Dr. Gould bring up this concept. When you're uh, a clinician, your primary responsibility to your sub subject is safety. Your secondary responsibility is to help them get better, to explore all the tools that, that you have in your arsenal to help, help mitigate pain. When you're an investigator, your primary responsibility is safety. Your secondary responsibility is to administer the study according to the protocol. And you need to make sure that that relationship is there. You don't want them thinking, oh, well, this is my doctor, or so you know, he or she knows, knows best. They have to understand they have a 50-50 chance and so getting, getting placebo in most clinical studies, and they should report what they're feeling, not what you expect them or what they think you expect them to report. 
And this is an example of, of this real-time monitoring. There are quantitative data surveillance programs. I don't expect anybody to be able to read these slides, but this just gives you a flavor, or a, a graphical flavor of what kind of screen outputs you get. At a priori, before you start the study, we determine what are some of the key metrics that define success in the study. And then those metrics are followed across sites. And when we see that a site fails, so for example, they may have patients that have low pain scores incomplete diaries as, as two of them, we can then mitigate by going out to the sites and retraining or if we find that, that the sites you know, may, not, may not after all have that patient you know, population, it's okay to say maybe this is not the study for you, know, for you because we don't want to get into an end of one on one subject per site in a you know, year-long trial, year-long meaning enrollment. So in the last couple of minutes, what I'd like to do is I'd like to talk a little bit about study design. Um, I mentioned the EERW study design. This is what it looks like. So you're probably familiar that many of the abuse-deterrent opioids have gone through this study design where you have a screen, typical screening phase. In the titration phase, it's a, it's a run-in, an, uh, an active run-in period where you give the drug and over or four to six, six weeks, you achieve effect, a predefined effect. If you can achieve that effect, that's okay. Patients drop out as non-responders, and only those that do have a response to the drug are put in the double-blind period. And it's randomized withdrawal because now we wean them off of that and switch them over to, to placebo. And then you have a typical parallel trial. This selects out for non-responders. It's well-established, accepted by the FDA, and has been done in numerous industry studies. The second type of uh, study that I, that I want or concept that I want to come across is as a comparison of the traditional study design to an adaptive, study, uh, adaptive study design and, and what that buys you. So here's a typical study design where we have phase one, phase two, phase three. It's separated by, by long periods of blackout, so you have these gaps. You can't adjust do doses in there. You basically he held hostage to finishing phase, phase two, interpreting the data, then starting phase three, and hopefully you got it all right in phase two. Many times, your standardized effect size that you generate in phase two is much lower in phase three, or it might, might not even separate from placebo. Oh, and some of the factors that I've talked about earlier in the, in the second mod module, oh, those you have to keep in mind because they help mitigate that. So what can we do about this? Well, what if you have a window oh, to look into these studies as you're actually conducting them? Well, that's what an adaptive trial design is, right? You a priori specify what kind of looks you're going to have. So, oh, this is, this is, um, uh, this is appropriate for registration studies. There are, there are many different types, but I'll talk about a phase two, three combination uh, type study. And what this shows you here is you can move that arm sooner up front. So you can see that's traditional, and that now moves, moves everything up front because what you've now done is you've predefined looks, and you can actually adjust doses. You can drop dosing groups. You can shift the number of patients into the dose groups that remain and so that you're basically facilitating and, um, you know, assay sensitivity through a clinical study design. And here's another way of looking at this. The bottom part of this diagram shows you the typical long sequential type of, type of uh, study. You can see it's much longer than the, the top design, which is much shorter, but gets you to the sa same end more efficiently. And the last study design that I'll talk about is the sequential parallel comparison design. Um, I don't know what happened to the, to, to the, uh, to the shading, but uh, forget kind of you know, what's in treatment phase two on, on the left-hand side. I want to really focus on the treatment phase one. It's typical like every study, right? You, patients or subjects come in, they're randomized into active treatment or placebo. They, they run through the study, and you've got some responders and some non-responders. 
The interesting thing is that for the placebo group, the non-responders, if you randomize them again into active and placebo, you get a remarkable improvement, and, uh, or not improvement, you get a remarkable precision or accuracy in the res in responding rates. BMS did a st study in the psychiatry world where they showed nine times increase in the effect in treatment phase two of the placebo non-responders. So these are people that responded appropriately SIBO was not supposed to work, but then they didn't want to spoil those patients, so you randomize the, the, them again. And, and again, here what you're doing is you're adding more patients uh, into, the study, into the study, but you're actually refining the likelihood of, of having a, a poor assay sensitivity. So on that note, I've mentioned impact. I've put the reference down. This is a really good paper from 2012. It covers a plethora of, of subject as well as study level uh, constructs to help you improve assay sensitivity. Very, very good, good reading. And I included a quick summary. And on that note, I'll stop. Thanks very much. Thank you, Ernest. with great pleasure that I uh, introduce another senior faculty member, Dr. Rami Ben-Joseph. He is a uh, noted internationally recognized expert in health economics and outcomes research, and uh, he's going to give us an insight into some of this real-world data for post-operative pain in inpatient settings. Thank you, Rami. Thank you, Joe, and thank you, my colleagues. Hi. How are you guys doing? Doing good? We're going to have an interactive session, and we're going to talk about Donuts, how about that? Fair enough? So, disclosure, it's right here on the screen, and today I'm going to talk to you about donuts. Do you really gain weight? Right? We don't know that. That's not a fact. That had never been studied. If you talk to my colleagues, right, Ernest and Dr. Kopesky, Dr. Gould, right, and you ask them, do you really gain weight when you eat donuts? What are they going to tell you? Oh, you have to do a randomized clinical trial, right? <laughs> you randomize, randomize them to good donuts, randomize them to no donuts. I don't know if that's ethical not to give them donuts. <laughs> well, there are other ways to kind of figure out that question. So today I'm going to talk to you about how do you study if you're really getting weights by eating donuts. And I think that I have the wrong slide set. Joe? <laughs> uh, no, I don't have them on a disk. Uh, sorry about that. I'll try to improvise without slides. How about that? So I'm going to talk to you about health outcomes research. You can use your phones. You can Google that topic. I probably don't want to put the wrong title. I have the disclosure over there. You can actually look in your phone, Google up what is health outcomes research, and you get all kind of descriptions of what that entitles. I'm not going to bother going through all of those different definitions, but the reality is if you want to have a product put on formulary, if you want to have market access, you need to have health outcomes research. You will not get access if you don't have this kind of a information. Rami, what I might suggest is, I'm not sure what happened with the program, they're going to try to reload your slides. Okay. Let's bring up Dr. Taylor now. Sounds great. This way uh, you have your deck because you did such great work on it. No problem. And if you could just see the gentleman in the back, I'm not sure how they did it. So we will, to be continued, 
much like in clinical trials, uh, intuitive improvisation is one of the keys for getting a study done a lot of times. So today we're going to do that. We're going to substitute in Dr. Taylor. Dr. Taylor, Robert Taylor, is uh, uh, really recognizes one of the uh, young phenoms in the clinical research world. Within the first uh, two years after finishing his fellowship, he had about 115 publications. He uh, helped uh, organize and run the Beacon Project, Best NSAIDs in the Elderly, which is 60 uh, countries around the world looking at uh, practices of NSAIDs in the elderly, and has had a tremendous career since then. So I'm very proud and honored to uh, recognize Dr. Taylor today, again, one of the senior faculty. And he's going to talk to us about how you actually get your data published. Thank you. Robert. Hello. Okay. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, again, my name is Robert Taylor. Um, I uh, just want to say thank you to the organizers for inviting me back. Uh, I believe this is my fifth time here. Uh, I haven't been here for the past two years. For uh, I was running a, a very large study and unfortunately wasn't able to make it out here. And last year, uh, Hurricane Irma decided to rip through Florida, so I had to take care of the, the home. But um, since we do have limited time, <clears throat> I'm going to kind of change the, uh, the talk up a little bit. Um, uh, I'm an employee of NEMA Research. We are a full-service uh, clinical research organization. Uh, we do uh, phase one through phase four type of work as well as regulatory work for a number of pharmaceutical, biotech companies, and a lot of startup companies as well. Uh, the information that I'm going to present today is, is based on my experience and not the opinion of, of NEMA Research. So the past few years that I've presented this this slide deck, um, I've gone into basically describing how you would set up a manuscript. I would walk you through the abstract, uh, introduction, discussion, uh, results, as well as your conclusion. Um, but nowadays, you know, all that information really is online. You can find that available. Uh, a lot of the big publishers actually have courses and classes that you can just uh, view online uh, to understand how to set up a manuscript, how to put together all those different pieces, um, and you even get you even get certificates uh, by going through it. Um, I believe one of the big publishers, Elsevier, uh, has those type of uh, courses that you can take. Um, but so what I'm going to just kind of briefly touch upon is what I've learned in the past year or so in terms of once you actually get your manuscript published, what you can do to actually promote it. Um, you spend a lot of time, you even spend a lot of money, whether you're writing it yourself or you hire some medical writing group to put together a manuscript. Uh, you want to make sure it's actually going out to people and people are actually seeing it. And based on conversations that I've had with some conference members, uh, sometimes you only get 20 hits, maybe 30 hits in the entire country or even the entire world if you do uh, open access, for example. So there are a lot of up-and-coming uh, resources that you can use, um, even a lot of the current resources, for example, like Facebook and Twitter and things like that, that you wouldn't think of using to promote your manuscript, but you can use. So I'm going to kind of skip through here because I want to get Rami up here. Um, but this, uh, this slide deck is available online, so I, I've put a lot of uh, information in here that will walk you through, again, setting up the manuscript, but also walking you through uh, selecting authors, uh, walking through selecting specific journals, um, and other things to look at, especially if you do... Uh, if you're doing clinical trials, um, certain things like uh, checklists that journal, journals require. 
So I want to just go here to uh, online IDs that you should know. So you may be able to publish your research, but you'll never be able to maybe link your research to you. For example, my name's Robert Taylor. There's a million Robert Taylors in this country, in, in the world. So I get notifications all the time in my email that I'm publishing work that I've never even touched on, or I've never even dealt with. Um, so one thing that uh, a lot of groups are starting to realize is that, uh, that you need unique IDs. And when you have a unique ID, you match that ID to that particular manuscript or to your work. Um, one of the big ones was the ORCID IDs. Uh, that, was, uh, that was one of the original ones, but now there's a number of them based on publisher um, that you probably should be familiar with. So, for example, uh, you have the research ID, uh, you have ORCID, as well as a Scopus ID, and even Google Scholar has a citation profile. So I would suggest that you sign yourself up for all of them so that you can link your work and your manuscripts um, to those particular IDs. And actually, they also help promote your manuscript. So a lot of these are... are big communities that are coming together um, that look for these IDs and look for uh, your particular research. So one of those groups is ResearchGate. So this is an online portal that basically you promote your, your work. Um, and also this is where other authors come together. Uh, there's lots of forums, they talk about the work, um, but they also reach out to you for access to your manuscripts or access to uh, that particular journal that is uh, publishing your work. Um, so it's a real good community to basically uh, provide your, your manuscript, your data, to uh, the rest of the world. Um, Kudos is another up-and-coming service. Maybe some of you have received information to join the, their service. Um, but I'm, what I've found with these guys is they do, they kind of go above and beyond uh, ResearchGate right now. They actually ask you to put in a little bit more information uh, about your manuscript. Describe it a little bit more than, than what you might uh, get if you're just you know, publishing it on, or if it's promoted on, say, like PubMed. Um, there's more information. You can describe your manuscript in more detail and, and go into the, the, the nitty-gritty of, of, your, of your work. Um, but the nice thing about Kudos, which I'll show in just a second, is that they give you a lot of metrics. So they show you where your manuscript is actually being looked at, whether, again, it's Twitter, maybe it's LinkedIn, um, Facebook, or your own website. So it tracks all of that information, and it gives it to you in a nice kind of dashboard type of environment. So now you understand where your manuscript is, work, is being promoted, where a lot of people are able to see it, versus relying on, say, the journal to do the work for you. I mean, you can, be, you can publish in the best journal in the world, but maybe they're not marketing your, your work. Um, it's just not getting out there. So like I said, you know, one of the top-tier journals, a single hit, or they only got 20 hits. And this was a high-impact type of journal. So don't rely just strictly on the impact factor of a journal or other metrics of a journal, you know, their subscriber base, because maybe they have a large subscription, but they're not promoting it out there. Um, and before you know it, your manuscript falls behind all the newest stuff that comes in. So this gives you a really good idea of what's working and what's not. And again, you're not relying on the journal to do the work for you, but you're promoting it on your Twitter account, you're promoting it on Facebook or LinkedIn. Um, I find LinkedIn is actually a very good resource to use. Um, there's a nice section in your profile where you can link all of your manuscripts. Um, and so I suggest that you, you should try to get used to using a lot of those things. I mean, we're in, we're in an online world at this time. Um, Mendeley is, is another one. It's, it started off as a reference manager, 
but it's also starting to build up steam in terms of networking and organizing your research and also promoting it. And they have a set of uh, metrics that they use as well that you can track where your, your article is being uh, viewed. So like I said, um, publishing, you can promote it on, on a variety of different outlets. Um, open access gives it the ability or gives people throughout the entire world the ability to see it. Um, they don't have to pay for it. You're already doing that based on the, the open access fee. Um, again, ResearchGate, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or even you know, your own office website or that can be used to, to promote your manuscript. And these, uh, the next few slides are just examples of what you, what you can see as you, for this is, for example, ResearchGate. Um, it shows you in the last week um, how many hits or how many people decided to, to click on the link for your manuscript, um, how many times it was cited, um, recommend, uh, recommendations, you know, who's promoting your manuscript, um, and it also can track you over time. So this is something that's uh, very useful. Again, this is just the kudos dashboard. Um, this is just one of my examples. It gives you the list of all your manuscripts, when it was published, and you can see where it's being, being tracked. So again, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, other. Um, basically, you just attach the link that you used into the system, and then it's able to recognize every time someone clicks on it. So it's very important to, uh, to, to use. I think it's a very good resource. And then over time, if you do publish a lot, you'll see which journals are actually working and which journals are not. Um, and again, which resources are also working and which ones are not. Uh, I believe this is another dashboard from, I think this is Mendeley. Uh, this might be kudos. But again, it's just another way of, of seeing how well your manuscript is doing um, online. And so with that, I will end. I'm not sure if Rami is coming back up. Or we'll open it up to questions. I think we're at 3 o'clock right now. Okay. We're here at 3.30? Oh, I did not know that. Well, I ran through everything <laughs> for right now. What's that? Is it in a different folder? All right. Hey, guys. I'm back. Sorry about the confusion here. We're going to figure it out eventually, I think. Let's go back to talk about donuts, okay? So we really want to study donuts, and we want to study if eating a donut a day really results in weight gain. Well, there are many ways we can do that. As I've mentioned earlier, you can talk to my esteemed colleagues, and they will tell you to randomize people to a donut group and a not-donut group and see if they actually gained weight or not. That's absolutely one way to do that. There are other ways that we can do that without randomization. The underlying assumption of randomization is that if you randomize people to donuts or no donuts, what happens? Everything else becomes equal. And you're assuming that people in the donut group are very, very similar to the people in the no donut group, 
And then you can just look at your weight gain, and there we go. You have an amazing study. You can run your analysis, and you have your answer ready. Yeah, that's absolutely true. What happens if you, don't take, if you don't randomize them? And you just assign a group to donuts and a group to not donuts. Forget that. You actually ask people to volunteer. And next people say, hey, I would like to be in the donut group, right? And, you ask, and other people say, well, I really don't want to be in the donut group. Is there a really good chance that people in those two groups would be similar in terms of characteristics, like weight? Well, might be not the case, right? So there is a way and there is an important role for randomization, such as randomized clinical trial. They're absolutely important. And they help you get simple answers done. And it's pretty clear. Because you don't have to worry about, did we start with groups that are identical? Did we start with groups that are exactly the same? But sometimes you can't randomize. I'll give you some examples of why we can't randomize them. Think about surgery. You know, right now there's a great debate if, you, if patients go through surgery and go through opioid-free surgery versus patients who go through surgery that includes opioids, is there a relationship between the utilization of opioids and chronic opioid use post-discharge? That's a very, very legitimate patient question, right? Would that be legitimate to actually randomize patients to that kind of study if you really strongly believe that there's an association not sure, but maybe randomization is not the best uh, option. Smoking. Is it really ethical to randomize patients to a smoking group and a non-smoking group and observe them over time to see if they actually get cancer? Probably not the best design to answer that question. So we have different types of design that I'll share with you. I'll share with you three types of design. I'll try to do that without slides that help you answer those questions. And again, let's forget surgery, let's forget pain, let's focus on donuts. A lot easier, right? So, one way to look at that, you can observe patients, I'm sorry, patients, people who like donuts. And look at people who eat a donut a day, and look at a group of people who don't eat a donut a day. So we have the exposure. And now we have two cohorts, and that's called the cohort study design. And look at the two cohorts, the cohorts that really eat a donut a day. Look at the cohort that doesn't eat a donut a day. A few years later, or a few months later, whatever is your time frame, you look at weight gain. And there we go, you have your answer. So you have a cohort study design. You have the exposure. People are get assigned based upon the exposure, right? Eating a donut or not eating a donut. Follow them over time and look at the weight gain. No need for randomization and you have an answer. Are those people exactly the same? Probably not. There's a lot of issues between comparing those groups. But again, sometimes it's not ethical, and withholding donuts from people is not a great idea. <laughs> a second study design, case control. So case control, you don't look at the exposure. You look at the outcome. So if you're looking at the world of pain and look at a world of addiction, you might look at patients who are chronic opioid users, Look, if they had a surgery, let's say a year before that, and were opioid used in that surgery, and you're going to get the rate, right? You find another group that is not a chronic opioid user group, so now you're, random, you're identifying patients based upon the event. Chronic opioid user versus not chronic opioid user. You go back in time, look, did they have surgery, were opioid utilized? 
That is a case control study design. And again, you can actually answer the same question. And I'm back to my slides. I'll continue with that slides. <laughs> Easier. <laughs> again, so case control, you're looking at the outcome. Did the person gain weight? Did the person not gain weight? Looking at all of those patients who gained weight, look back, did they eat a donut a day? Find another group that you match them. That, that group did not, eat donut, uh, did, not weight, uh, did not gain weight. And again, you compare them to did they eat a donut a day or not. So those are the two designs. There's a third way to actually analyze, uh, answer the same question. That would be a cross-sectional design. Sometimes you don't have the resources or you don't have the time to actually wait to see if patients are really eating a donut every day. Again, I'm saying patients, people are eating a donut a day, really making sure they're really eating that donut. Or the other group that's not supposed to eat a donut a day are really not eating that donut. You really don't have the time and the resource to, uh, to enforce that. And you say, I'm going to make it very, very simple. Everybody at pain week, when you go to the registration desk, they're asking you, have you eaten donuts this week? And what is your weight? Now you don't really know which one caused what. Is there an association between weight and, and donut eating or vice versa? This is called a cross-sectional design. But you can get a rough answer. And you can actually look at, at people who ate donuts this week, get the average weight of that group, and look at the people who actually didn't eat a donut this week and get the average weight of that group. That is considered a cross-sectional design. And again, it's one other way to answer a research question. It's, you can easily see how you can apply those type of retrospective observational study design that don't have randomization into your institution, into your clinical practice. Often you have to look at value of a pharmaceutical. Often you have to think about, do we want to add a drug to formulary? You want to do a study in your own institution, and you're not going to do a randomized clinical trial to get an answer, should a product be added to our formulary or not. Those three designs that I shared with you, maybe not about donuts, but about pain control, about post-surgical pain control, about chronic pain management, and so on, give you meaningful alternatives that are fairly inexpensive looking at patients. And again, you can look at the exposure and then follow to see the outcome. You can look at the outcome, go back and look at the exposure, or you can just look at both of them at the same amount of time. And with that, thank you for your time. Thank you for uh, taking that on the uh, chin. <laughs> Slides are available, and then we apologize to Dr. Ben-Joseph. They I confused his, one of his other lectures with this when they incorporated the slides, but just uh, to go through them, he did a really beautiful job. You can find the slides in your um, complete uh, package. So with that, I'd like to see if there are any questions from the audience, and uh, then we can... Uh, if we can invite the faculty up, and if there are any particular questions, we do have about 15, 20 minutes for that. Uh, one second, I'll get you the mic. So if I can ask the faculty to come up.
Uh, very good presentation. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, this would be towards, I guess, Dr. Gould or any one of the other ones who would be able to answer. Uh, many institutions require educational program prior to even thinking about applying uh, for any uh, research authorization from the IRB. Could you address those educational requirements if uh, you have any knowledge of those? Um, yeah, so well, I, if I understand what you're getting to, so there's, um, there's a program called CITI. Yeah, that, that's one institution that offers it. Um, many universities and many hospitals require you to have uh, GCP training or good, cl good clinical practice tra training and, uh, before you can, or it's also referred to as human subjects training, um, before you can uh, apply to do clinical research as part of that institution. Uh, there are programs um, that are offered through the NIH, which you can do, which I think is, uh, there's no cost involved, but it's, it's a very simple program. And then through, through City, um, they uh, offer, uh, not the bank, but through, through City, they offer more comprehensive um, multi-section uh, human subjects training course. Um, many institutions require you to do that before you can actually conduct human subjects uh, clinical research. Are there any, uh, Robert, go ahead. Yeah, there's also, um, uh, there's two certification groups, uh, ACRP as well as, I believe it's SOCRA. Um, I believe the ACRP is, is more well-known and, and used in the United States, um, but it's certification for a principal investigator um, as well as uh, a clinical research associate or a clinical research monitor as well as a study coordinator. Um, so it's certification that they can receive that will also go into um, good clinical practices, uh, ethics, and things like that, but it also gives a little bit more information and more training on how to run a, a study properly. So that might also be something to, uh, to consider as well. That, that is different, though, than, than what, I was, uh, what I was talking about. Um, that those give you credentials uh, to, to, to uh, conduct uh, clinical studies as a, as a clinical investigator or a CRC. What, what I was addressing is in, in academic institutions, you need to have this, this training as human subjects training certification before the institution's IRB will allow you to, to conduct human subjects clinical research. Yes, another question. One moment. Great presentation. Uh, my question is around, we a lot of this is surrounding uh, drug trials. And I'm curious if any or all of you gentlemen can give me an overview of how you might differentially appro approach this if it's a device trial. So for example, device pain trial. So you, you know, it's harder to do sham or, you know, versus placebo, if you will. Um, in a lot of these device trials, and what either kind of trial type you would tend to use for these kinds of things. And this would mostly, I mean, the context is an inpatient device trial for acute pain control. So how you might approach that as opposed to what we've been hearing most of. 
So I'll, I'll take the, for the first shot at this. So um, the device, uh, how to register a device is, is a very different pathway than how to register a drug. And if you have a drug-device combination, then you kind of have to satisfy you know, both, both, both requirements. For devices specifically, you can do double dummy type studies. Many of the things that I sp spoke about in terms of how to set up the, the, the study um, is, would be applicable to a device uh, clinical study as well, including subject training and training them on your outcome measures, training them on how to use the actual de device that, 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 that you have. So it, it actually translates to device uh, studies as well. Sorry, it might be my accent. Um, just following on from that, uh, I guess the barriers of entry and the lead times in terms of product development different from, uh, you know, clinical trials of molecules. So if, uh, if you're asking me, um, when you're talking about lead times, you're talking about availability of, of the device? Through to development, through yeah. to uh, yeah. So, so, so the length of time to develop uh, a drug, whether you're, if you're talking a, a pharmaceutical, you're talking a biologic, or, or versus a, getting a device approved, is very different. Drugs take much long, much longer. Devices are a much simpler pathway a, to to development. Now there are differences in, in device development where you have to have a lot of you have to add additional studies like human factors, you know, uh, a human factor study. That's you know depending upon the type of device. If it's if it's patient facing, then you need to have, to involve all of uh, studies studying the design attributes of that device. There's a there's a um, akin to a label heating study, it's a use heating st study for a, a device as well. So there are a number of other supportive studies that are part of that package in addition to your, your pivotal study that you use for your primary outcome to get it approved. Okay. Yeah, and, and with devices, remember there are uh, basic, two basic pathways. The, there are three, but there's a 510K where you have a predicate. There's a, a 510K de novo where it's a predicate, but it's a new device. And then there's a PMA, um, and the PMA it can be made equivalent to like a new chemical entity for drugs. And this is where you have to really go through. On top of that, you have um, the different classifications of the devices, class one, two, and three, depending on the invasiveness of that device. So uh, these are the different things that you'll look at the paradigm for it. But uh, Ernest is absolutely correct. With the 510K predicates, uh, particularly class one or two devices, these are rather uh, quick um, type of approvals. They may not even need um, a clinical study. But, you know, then you're sort of caught out there when, when you look at a market-aligned planning and how are people going to pay for it? What are you going to show managed care or what are you going to show the individual who has to pay, take the burden of cost? That's usually why these studies are, are also done to help uh, give some support behind the uh, adoption of them. One moment. Probably for Dr. Rafter, but for anyone that could answer, I found very interesting the, uh, the concept of a nanoscale synthesis and potentially ex uh, accelerating the rate of development in terms of uh, mechanism therapeutic targets. Uh, what about coupling that with machine learning to be able to uh, find, uh, I guess, potential uh, receptor ligand targets? I mean, 
the tech industry are very good at that. Google are using it to speed up development or the drive towards auto autonomous driving. So is that a potential, I guess? Yes, so the application of machine learning or artificial uh, intelligence is definitely being used already. Uh, the, the place that that's most effective is with uh, computer discovery of new compounds. So that's an approach that's been going on for quite a while now in which you put into the computer the design of the receptor. That's usually what's done, or the enzyme. So you just have the computer construct the three-dimensional version of the receptor. All you got to do is type in the amino acid sequence, et cetera, and a couple of other thermodynamic requirements. Uh, they're getting pretty sophisticated now, so they're incorporating the water molecules around the receptor, which is extremely important for the three-dimensional structure of a protein and also for the binding characteristics because it changes the thermodynamics completely. So that's all now, with supercomputers, it's all easy to do that. And then what you do is you have the computer design the molecules, uh, create them on the computer, you know, the right three-dimensional shape, et cetera, and then you screen them through your three-dimensional structure, receptor, or enzyme. So you can literally start the program running, go home, and have the computer create 10,000 compounds and screen them overnight. So you could also get a pretty good idea of the affinity of binding now. Now, you, what you can't do yet is determine whether it's going to be an agonist or an antagonist. So, uh, but you can get the affinity. So where does the machine learning and the, and the AI come in? Is now you have a database of literally 10,000 compounds a day, and you can then select a couple of those, right, and put them in some sort of assay, some high-throughput screening assay in test tube, and now you have a bunch of data points where you could feed back so eventually the computer can learn what are better molecules to design that fit better. And now, instead of randomly screening 10,000 through there, you go through the iterations, and each time you get better and better until you can get the ideal candidate, at least with binding affinity, using without ever making a compound. And then you could use something like the, the nanoscale technology to isolate and identify the agonist from the antagonist, feed that information back into the computer with the AI, and now you could essentially design uh, an ideal candidate or half a dozen, and only then, uh, you know, get the medicinal chemist to actually try to make them. Uh, for any other questions? Okay, well, again, I want to thank you very much for joining us. Sorry about the AV technical difficulty. Enjoy the rest of pain week. Thank you.